0: So this evening I like to share with you different things. First I like to look at uh, four reliances that I found in the Zen text again. And these generally have been found in the Tibetan tradition but I was very happy in a way to find it also in the Zen tradition. And they also use these four reliances in Korea and so the four reliances are in a way when we practice what is it we should rely on, what is it we should trust, what what should we consider. So the first one says rely on the Dharma not on the person. And this points out that often we might be attracted or seduced or inspired by the charisma of somebody. And it's saying, you know, look beyond the person. You could have somebody wearing the right clothes. But are they really telling the Dharma you could have somebody so very uncharismatic, but they actually what they say might be really about the Dharma, about the practice. So it's kind of looking, what do I rely on? Rely on the person and maybe what I put on the person. Because we also have to be careful that sometimes we imagine something on the teacher that is not there. I remember once I was many years many years ago when my teacher was still alive and I was traveling with him master kuzan in uh, California and we were in a zen center with somebody accompanying us and suddenly the master stopped <gasps> and then the young man said ah oh, this is amazing this is so profound Can you ask the master the meaning of his gesture? It was so profound. So I I translated and seemingly the gesture was that. And I asked Master Kuzan, what why did you do this? He said, Oh well there was a fly, so I had to flick it away. So it was not very profound, but not to us anyway. It's so easy to kind of impute things. So in a way it's kind of looking, do I rely on the person, the charisma, the image I have of the person, or the hope I have of what they got? Often there is this question, is he enlightened? Is she enlightened? Like there was a little place where, you know, there is like a, uh, a mark, enlightened. I know in the Zen tradition you have the transmission and you have the, the passing and thing like that, but I think one has to be careful there. You know, what's that step? You know, enlightened step, you know. I think we have to see, but what about the Dharma? What about the teaching? What about wisdom? What about compassion? Then the next one, rely on the meaning, not on the words. And the thing with words is that they are very seductive. And there are words which really gets us. We hear them, mm, I want that. So if you hear about truth, mm, truth, with generally a capital T, giant T, I want it. Or if you hear about freedom, liberation, Mm, I want that. And we have to be careful to, again, to be seduced, I think, by words. But really look at the meaning. What is the meaning of the word? Can I apply it? Can I use it in my life? Many years ago when I used to live in Totnes. Suddenly, I kept hearing a word. All my friends started to use the word freedom. And that's when I realized there was a new guru on the high street. you know. And he seems to be selling freedom or giving freedom or whatever. It was weird. This, and then suddenly everybody was talking about freedom. Everybody had to be free. Even children had to be free. So their parent could go off to do retreat with the guru and leave the children at home taking care of themselves. Then the neighbor had to take care of them because they were not that free. After all, age 12 or 13. So, you know, we kind of seeing how we can easily, I think, be seduced by words, but to look, what is a meaning? Can I apply it to my life? Then you have the third one. Rely on the scriptures with definite meaning, not on those that needs interpretation. And often in the spiritual circle, and even more so, in the Zen circle, the more mystifying, the better, you know. I don't understand it, but who cares? <laughs> you know, it's, it sounds really weird, but ah, it's great, it's great, you know. And I remember, I uh, when I first was in in Korea, I thought the same. I thought Zen, it's not logical. Who cares if it doesn't make make sense? What I translate, you know, that's the way it is. Until Stephen came, and he was helping me with the English when I translated (coughs) the Korean, and so we were working on a text, and then suddenly Stephen said, "But it's not logical." I said, but it's Zen. Who cares if it's logical, you know? He said, no, 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 no. Even then it's logical. And then we kind of looked at it, and then I realized, yes, I had mistranslated something. But that was actually very helpful for me as a translator after that, because I became a little more rigorous. And I can remember this moment when the master said... And I was going to translate, it's like an eye, eyeball, falling onto a stove. First I thought, well, it's Zen. So this is weird. Even for Zen, it's really weird. It's more like an horror movie. So I thought, Stephen said it is logical, logical. So I thought, okay, okay. Noon. Noon has two meaning it sounds the same but it's two different meanings and then I said it is like a snowflake falling onto a hot stove it disappeared immediately (laughs) worked much better (laughs) so again to be careful again back to the meaning can I understand it does it mean something can I apply it then the last one, rely on wisdom, not on knowledge. And this is talking about that in a way, from a very young age, we develop our thinking, we develop our knowledge. But I think in a way one of the reasons we do meditation is what we can see partly the limitation of knowledge, the me- limitation of thinking. To know something doesn't mean that it's going to change anything. I remember one of the reasons I started to want to do meditation when I was 18 years old and rather idealistic, and I wanted to be noble and compassionate and this, that, and another. And I used to tell myself, don't be jealous, don't be egoist. It had no effect whatsoever. So I knew it was not a good idea to be jealous, egoist, angry, whatever it was. I knew it. But I could tell myself, don't do this, don't do that. But because it's just, just from knowledge, just from thinking, it did not work. It did not have any effect. And that's why I decided, in a way, to do the meditation. Because I thought then there would be more possibility to develop what we call experiential wisdom. So it's not just a thought, but actually it's something which has an impact on the whole body-mind system. And then it makes a difference to the way you are with the circumstances, with the condition, back to this creative engagement. And that's why, what, like, what i like to talk now about is in a way this experiential wisdom. How do we get it? How do we develop it? How do we experience it? And I think on a retreat like this, we can have experiences. Experiences of a different nature. We can have, for example, an experience what I would call opening the heart experience. You sit in meditation and suddenly you feel like your heart open to the whole world. And in that moment, there is nobody you cannot love. Because if we look, when we love, generally we we love but... You know, that one there is that problem, that one there is that problem, I don't know about that one there. Those were about okay. But what is interesting with that experience is that in that moment, there is really this wide open, it embraced everywhere this love. And it feels incredible. But I think what is very important to see with this experiential wisdom, in a way, in that experience of opening the heart, is that it's limited. At that moment, you feel it. You really know it. And I think it's very important to have these experiences because we experience ourselves differently. But generally, it passes. And then you still have that difficult neighbor Is he going to be included when you go back home or not? So I think it's important to see that on retreat, we can have these experiences. For example, this opening of the heart. Or we can have an insight. We can have an understanding. We sit here or we walk outside and we see something so clearly. Like we see that it was in front of our nose. But we did not see it before. We could not see it because there was thing in the way. And through the meditative process, we really see, oh yeah. And we see something so clearly. At that moment, we have no doubt about it. At that moment, we really know it. That it be change, that it be conditionality, that it be whatever it is, we really know it. For ourselves. But again, it's an experience. And it's limited. In so far that it goes. And then it is a memory. And then how do we translate this memory into our life? And this is, I think, the thing with experiential wisdom. How can we bring it into our life? How can it make a difference in the way we are in our life? And often what happens is that it's more like a memory, but then it already brings a little space. We start to be less fixed, less rigid, because of that. But in order to to become like what I would call a daily life, experiential wisdom, we really need to apply it. We really need to work with it. You might also have an experience of dissolution. This sometimes happens. that you sit in meditation and you experience your body very differently. It's like it has no border anymore and you feel like, where I am? And it, and it doesn't mean that your body is not there, but it means that you experience it very differently. You don't, kind of, you're not so fixed, solid, separate. It's more this feeling of connection with existence, with life. And so our border becomes a little more fuzzy. So we experience ourselves very differently. But we still exist. We still are who we are. But we experience that differently. And so I think, in a way, when we have this moment of experiential wisdom, it is very nurturing. But we have to be careful that it is kind of like a moment which arises out of all the practice you've done up to this moment. And in that moment, you have a moment of de grasping, of releasing. So there can be this experience of the open heart. There can be this clarity. There can be this experience of selflessness, of dissolution. But then it goes. So I think this is what we have to be careful, how to translate this experiential wisdom into our daily life. Instead of thinking, this is it, I got it. I remember when we were in Korea, there were these three monks who went to the hermitage high in the mountain. They were going to practice hard. This is a myth. You You go to the hermitage and you practice very hard. So they went to practice really hard day and night. What is this? What is this? And then one of them suddenly had an experience. He had an experience of emptiness. Emptiness. Amazing. Everything is empty. I am empty. Everything is empty. I must be enlightened. So off he runs down from the hermitage to the main temple and he goes to Master Kuzan and he said, Master, Master, everything is empty. I am enlightened, aren't I? And the master takes his big stick, he has a much bigger one, and he hits him and the guy says, Hey, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> and he was not convinced. Because he had such an amazing experience of emptiness. It was so amazing. So he went to the next master, who did exactly the same thing. Not convinced yet. He went to the third one. Then he got the same thing. So finally he decided to go back and practice more. So that in a way the emptiness is not the end of the path. If we look at the observing ten- picture, the image of the path, After the emptiness, you still have coming back to the world, being enlightened by all things, and then coming back with compassion into the world. So I think this is what we have to be careful, that we have this experiential wisdom, but that it then has to become organic. I wanted to read you a poem from my favorite nun. I kind of wrote... uh, a life story. And because I, th- I thought the poem was very appropriate to your situation, very much like you, she did a lot of meditation. Morning meditation over, I leave the hall to greet the singing birds, the luxurious shades of mountain trees, a thousand perfumed flowers, a hundred sparkling grasses, all the body of virochana original source of the Buddha, so vivid and clear. If all this arises through one body, why then birth and death, confusion and enlightenment? As the original source, birth, death, nirvana, all dreams, Ordinary and sacred, both dreams. Samsara and liberation, only dreams. What I found interesting about her poem is that she comes out of the meditation and then she, she sees everything, the bird, the tree, the grasses, and she's really aware, really present to all this. And at the same time, She has this experience of emptiness. But when you knew her, she was not somebody floating on the cloud of emptiness at all. Because actually she had, she was a very spiritual person. She has done really great uh, meditative experiences. But she was the first one to go and sweep the leaves. She was the first one to go and gather echoes to make a special jelly, and she was one of the most humble person I ever met. It's so kind. So in a way, to see that the emptiness we talked about, we talk about, is not that everything disappear, but that we are with things in a very different way. We kind of, in a way, reconnect through the self-centeredness disappearing, we can see the world, be in the world, in a kind of more connected way. And so, what I found very interesting in terms of that, that experiential wisdom, is this idea which was in my monastery. I was in one of the monasteries in Korea which actually was looked down upon because we were gradualist, And this is a very bad insult. You know, if you're a Zen person, if you're a gradualist, you're really, you know, you're not up to par, you're kind of down. You know, because in the Zen tradition, generally you are a subitist. You are into sudden, sudden awakening, sudden practice, everything has to be sudden. And I was in the only temple in the whole of Korea who was into sudden gradual, which to me make the most sense. Because what they were saying is that you have sudden breakthrough, you have sudden experiential wisdom, and then this is followed by gradual practice. Then again, you have a sudden breakthrough, sudden experiential wisdom, and then again followed by gradual practice. And to me, it makes so much more sense because we can see nowadays there are so many people who are enlightened, actually. You know, if you go on the Internet, you know, you have all these people (laughs) who are enlightened. You know, there is this guy uh, who is an Arat, you know, and he's, I think, Bob the Arat or Dave the Arat or something like that, you know. (laughs) And, um, but to me, what is important is how do they lead their life? Because I think, in a way, having a breakthrough, that actually, I would say, is relatively easy. To have a moment of insight, to have a moment of heart, to have a moment of emptiness. That, I think, is relatively easy. Especially, you know, if you really try the meditation, the concentration, the inquiry, I think this happens. But what is difficult is actually the habits. Then actually, I think what we do when we do this meditation and what they do in Korea, where they do all this meditation, is not in a way to have bigger bangs, you know, bigger breakthrough. My breakthrough is better than yours, you know. It was a little kind of, you know... The, aura was bigger, it was more kind of Christmas light than yours but more that in a way you are developing the power of creative awareness so then, slowly, slowly you can start to work with the habits because when we look in our daily life what is problematic in our daily life? It's a habit. It's the automatism that we develop over time due to various conditions. And in in a way, how to work with this automatism, how to work with these habits, that in a way limit us. And so I think to see that the experiential wisdom and the practice we do will develop the power of creative awareness, so then, more and more, we see the habits. And more and more we see the conditions of the habit and of the contributing factors. So then over time, they can diminish. They can diminish in intensity. They can diminish the suffering they create to us. For example, let's look at uh, a mental habit you might have experienced sitting here. You've been doing a lot of meditation for the last four days, And I presume possibly not all the time you are either with the breath or with the question, and possibly time to time you sit there, breath, what is this? A year ago, he said this to me. How could he say this to me? I mean, how dare he? Or dare she? I mean, this was hurtful. I mean, I would, I would have never done it myself. And then you start to really go obsessed about it. A year ago, they did this, they said this, this was so bad, this was so terrible, how could that, da da da, da. I would have never, Ta da da, da 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 And then you jump, you bypass the present where you're supposed to watch the breath and ask the question, and you move into the future, And you plot revenge. Very compassionate. Next time I see them, they'll say that, but I will say that and I will get them. And then you try to think the more cutting things you can say. That's not very helpful. But we do this often. We find ourselves doing this on the cushion. And in ways to see with the creative awareness to see the past is gone. I cannot change the past. I can learn from the past, but I cannot change it. And the future, generally they will not say what I plan for them to say so I can say something better. And the only thing we can do is cultivate now. Be with the breath, with the question, so that then we develop more stability, more openness, more creative awareness, so that then when we meet them again, we can creatively engage with them there and then, how they are at that moment and how you are at that moment. And so just to see if we have a tendency toward rumination. And can I creatively engage with that habit? Another thing we might experience is fear. Fear is interesting. You kind of, suddenly you have this this feeling, this feeling which generally can (gasps) tighten you, kind of heighten you. (gasps) And a lot of the time, and I think that's where the creative awareness can really help us with fear, A lot of the time, the fear, if you look, it's fear in the future. I mean, if somebody is in front of you with a gun, I think it's fair enough to be afraid. But then you have to respond there and then. But generally, look, when we're afraid, we're afraid in advance. What if this happened? What if that happened? And then you make this huge really frightening story. And I think it's very important to see that. To see that the problem we fear in the future is because it's in abstraction. Your your creative potential cannot do anything about it whatsoever. And the only time you can address the fear is when the thing is there. And you can creatively engage with that. I saw that so clearly. When I was in Korea, and I did, we decided, the monks decided not to do the non-sleep week. That was not good. But we, the girls, we decided to do it. So off we go, the five of us, we're going to do this non-sleep week. And I did not mind the non sleepy What was bothering me was I was afraid that I would have heart attacks in the middle of the night going to the bathroom, which was outside. So I go to Master Kuzan, I say, Master, Master, you know, we're going to do this non-sleep week and I'm going to be afraid in the dark. What should I do? And he said, go back to the question. What is this? And I thought, okay. I thought it would be like magic. that the what is this would protect me from the bad guy out there. (laughs) So in the middle of the night, I would go to the bathroom and straight away, what is this, what is this, what is this, what is this? What is this? <laughs> but after today, I, I realized it worked. Actually, I was not afraid anymore. But not because it was magic, but it was actually the magic of the present. That actually, when I said, what is this? I would come back to awareness. I would come back to creative awareness in that moment and I would realize who would be there in the middle of the night, in the middle of the mountain, to know that I was there to get me? (laughs) Nobody. And so that was very efficacious actually. Just this coming back to there is nothing frightening Right here, right now. Through that creative awareness, through the questioning. So with the fear, I think we have to be very careful with that, in a way, forecasting, that futuring fear and trying to come back to what is really going on right now. Is it really dangerous? How bad could it be? Now I sit here and I speak to you and it's very easy for me to speak to you. No problem. And I don't prepare that much either. But many, many, many years ago when I just started to give uh, teachings I was petrified. I was petrified. I was so worried that one day I was in California and uh, Jack Cornfield was giving a talk and then he asked Stephen and I to say something about the retreat we were going to lead for the first time in California at Spirit Rock. And uh, there were 400 people in the room. Oh, 400! I never talked to 400. How could I speak to 400? So I did not. I was so frightened. (laughs) So Stephen uh, took it and he spoke instead of me. And afterward, I felt so bad. I thought, you know, I let the women down, you know. Why was I? And I I realized I was just afraid by the number, 400. (gasps) And I kind of exaggerated. I grasped and exaggerated. And after that, I thought, but what is the worst that can happen? I can look stupid. And so why? I am not going to die of it. And after that, I was not afraid anymore. Who cares? One does the best one can. So we seeing how to be, we fear. Then you la- The last one is physical physical habit. And that physical habit, I would say one of the habits we have is comfort. And I know you are not so comfortable, possibly all of you sitting here in meditation. I know that. You know, some of you are fine, some of you not so much. But it's interesting to be with discomfort. Because we sit we sit here, we don't move. It's not very different in a way you're kind of watching inner television instead of outer television. But notice, when we watch television, we start like this, and then we go like that, and then we go like this, go like that, go like that. You know? And generally, we actually really don't sit still. you know, And often in, in daily life, we don't often sit still. And I think this is one of the great challenges for the body, and the mind also, but for the body, just to sit still, and just to be with it. And even I, I sit here, I also have a little discomfort. But, again, I'm not going to die of it. This was my great, my great breakthrough in Korea. When I really could not take the meditation. Then I was there, I can't take this, this is too much, I can't breathe, this is too boring, I have pain everywhere, I can't do this. And then Master Kuzan said, no, 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 no. You have to bear beyond strikes. You have to do this. If, I mean, if you come to this retreat, you have to do it. You can't, you know. Then I thought, it's true, these people, they've been doing this for 800 years, and nobody died of it, you know. So possibly I could do it too, and I will not die of it. And what was amazing, from one day to the next, it totally changed my attitude from... I can't do this, this is too much. Okay, just be with it, knowing it will change. After 35 minutes, you get up. If it's really too painful, you take a chair. If it's really, really too painful, here you can go and lie down. Master Cousin is not here to say, you must sit there. (laughs) But to me, it was really fascinating to see from one day to the next I still had the discomfort, but I had such a different relationship to it. Like I accepted it. Okay, it's a little uncomfortable, but generally I get up, it goes. I can do this. And that was to me very interesting, how we work with discomfort, how we work with unpleasant sensation. Once I was teaching um, a retreat... And I had at that moment I had a bad sciatica, really bad sciatica. And so we did the walking. It was a Zen retreat I was doing. We did the walking, and then I sit, and my leg is on fire. I have never had such pain in my leg. It's on fire. It's amazing, throbbing. It's really, really painful. But I have to sit there for thirty minutes. Because I'm the one ringing the bell, you know, doing the jukpi. So I can't leave. And I see that if I don't do this with creative awareness, the 30 minutes are going to be like a year. It's going to be like every second this incredible agony. And so I, I went with the questioning. I just went into the lake. I went with the, in the awareness of the throbbing of the heat. It was amazing. My concentration, my inquiry—they were just amazing. Thirty minutes went really fast. Then I hit the droopy, and then I went to take a painkiller. So, it, because you see, the thing to do this the whole time—this is to require a lot of energy—and I realized I did not have that energy, and painkiller would help anyway but just to see that sometimes we can be so differently with discomfort. So in a way, to kind of question it, explore it. And then again, there is this different relationship. And so in a way, back to the experiential wisdom, back to this kind of like habit And I think, in a way, to see through the practice, to me, one of the kind of, in a way, the revelation of the practice is conditionality. To see that we are not always caught in our habit. And we're not always caught to the same degree. So if we really know, I think, to me, this is... I know you sit here and some of you might think you know, what is this, what's that, I mean, who cares, you know, I can't stand this another second. But we're really building the creative awareness and really seeing the changing nature, seeing the condition, how condition arise, condition pass, how you feel different, how you have some contributing factor, how you have some trigger. So the meditation is not to fall into emptiness and be above it all, but it's actually more to penetrate into the conditions, the inner conditions, the outer conditions, and with the help of the practice, to really creatively engage with those conditions. To me, I think that's what the experiential wisdom is about that creative engagement with our inner and outer condition. And to finish with, I wanted, uh, again in this uh, wonderful text that was cobbled by a few monks, and towards the end of the book, they talk about awakening experiences, and then they say there is a way to self-examine One's progress, one's achievement, how the practice is going. And so I thought I would share some of them with you. You know what what, what what is it one needs to look at a little? When you are free, relaxed and open, are you disturbed by the demon, the demons of ignorance? So basically he's saying, when you are free, relaxed, and open, are you aware of change? Are you aware of unreliability? Are you aware of conditionality? And it's very interesting that generally if we feel fine, we think it's normal and we don't really inquire into it. And we actually don't really know it, that in that moment we are fine. And often it's when things are difficult that we think, okay, you know, let's look at the change, let's bring awareness to this. But actually he's saying when you feel really well, just be aware of that. Can you be aware of the condition of that experience in that moment? Can you hold the question clearly in your daily life, whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down. And so it basically it's saying the questioning is not just on this retreat, but that hopefully you can bring the questioning in some way in your daily life, in the different posture. And to me, this is something to look in daily life, not to resume meditation to just sitting, but also to see when I walk, to buy the milk, when I lie down in bed, when I stand, stand, this is one of the good ones. Standing in the supermarket queue. This is a good exercise. You're standing in the queue. Of course, you got the wrong queue. You know, the lady's talking, there is a problem with the check, or whatever. So you're kind of going slower and slower. And look at you, you're, kind of, you're standing, but you're kind of like physically trying to move the fit. and then coming back to just standing standing meditation being aware of the body just questioning in that moment what is this? just being here queuing in that moment personally I do a lot of practice in the supermarket or at the post office just standing meditation so trying to bring to use for posture are you able to make no distinction between motion and stillness? And so in a way, can we keep the practice that we be still or that we be in motion? What is interesting, for, like one of the difference between the Vipassana practice and the Zen practice, especially the Korean one, is the speed of the walking. Like if you go to Burma, they all go, That speed. You go to Korea, chop, 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 (laughs) chop, chop. Off we go. And what is interesting is that each is a thing that it's better. One thing going slower is better and one thing, you know, faster is better. But what it is saying is that can we practice in both? Can we practice in stillness? Can we also practice in motion? Can we bring the practice to both? Are your mind and all that arises from it consistent? This is interesting. Consistency, what does it mean? Consistency. And it's very interesting because when we're consistent, when we're stable, when we're centered, when we grounded, then actually it doesn't mean that we are kind of fixed and immobile. But it means that by being grounded, we can be more creatively engaged. But if we're not consistent, then we can feel when we're not consistent, we're all over the place. We, we, We feel easily destabilized. And back to what is it that helps me to be grounded? What is it that helps me to be stable? Regardless of the rank of upper, middle, and lower, do you respect others? This is an interesting one. You know, you you are with people, and how do you decide to behave towards them? Just you see them as human beings? Or just you think, hmm, that one looks interesting. That one, ooh, I have to avoid, I have to avoid. You know, how do we, can we be, you know, Have that openness of heart. Have that interest towards anyone and not some specific one. Then you have, do you find faults with others and discuss them? That, I think, is one of our favorite activities. So that requires a lot of practice not to do that. I think this is one of our things. I mean, we easily find fault with ourselves. And we also easily find fault with others. How could they do this? I would never, ever do that. It's interesting how generally we have a benchmark. You know, everybody should do like I do. Well, some of the time we ask, but not all the time. We have to be careful. What is behind the judgment? Of course, sometimes people make mistakes. But what is behind the judgment? What is a benchmark? To me, this is very interesting. If you judge something, if you judge yourself or judge others, what is a benchmark? What is it that you are kind of, in a way, uh, judging it against? And is it reasonable or not? Is it beneficial or not? Then does your practice accord with your life? To me, that's ultimate benchmark. You can have however many jhanas you want. You can have how many breakthroughs you want. But does it accord with your life? Do you live a life of wisdom and compassion? When people ask about enlightenment, and they say somebody is enlightened, my test would be, put them in a car, Let them have a breakdown in the middle of the night by minus 10 and it's raining without a phone. And then I would test if they were truly enlightened. That would be my benchmark. And I think this is what he's saying. Does your practice accord with your life? Then that's an interesting one. Is your desire for material wealth decreasing This is a good sign. In this time, in this time of austerity, this could be a good one. And then the last one. Do you keep the precepts at all times, regardless of being in retreat or not? Because this is difficult. It's kind of easy. When you are on retreat... Everything, in a way, is made so that we can easily cultivate ethics. It's very easy here to be ethical, to be compassionate. But when we go back into the world, that's not so easy. The world is so complex. And I think ethics is really a challenge. But I think because it's a challenge, it doesn't mean we will not try, just like we tried on retreat, but to be, you know, inspired to bring that element into our daily life. So that's what I wanted to share today. Thank you. Are there any questions or comments? Could, could I start then? creative awareness yes Um, because um, working with a pain um, something that I used to do is I used to kind of go towards the pain Um, at first I avoided it and then I got the habit of going towards it Um, and then that didn't really work because I'm going too much towards it and um, yeah sometimes it seems like there's just, you know, I'm trying different things and it's getting confusing. And then there's a point where it's like, well, I'm just going to sit and not do anything. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, what I'm asking is, like, what other ways are there of being creative? No, I think you, you are doing it. You see, you, you're really expressing it. That in a way, to me, the creative awareness is just to see in a way, first, the changing nature of the discomfort. It comes, it goes. Also, the changing nature of what I would call the energetic awareness, you have to deal with it. Sometime when you, your creative awareness is really good, you can be with it in a very different way. You can just go inside it and it just feels kind of like moving, changing, and it's fine. And then all the time you just can't do that. You really can't do that because you don't have the energy. And so generally I would say just to focus on something else. You see, I don't think we should always focus on the most intense point because it depends of the, of the way the thing is and it depends of how you are. So sometimes you focus on it and it's kind of like it dissolves in a way. And sometimes you focus on it and it becomes worse. And so it's kind of like playing with it. Kind of, you know, according to sometime you might go into it and then you can see the emptiness of it and sometime you can't. And then what I would do is put, that, put it in the background and then I would for, more focus on the question or focus on the breath or tomorrow I would suggest focusing on the sounds. So I think it's to see that too, that sometimes we feel that it happens by itself, being with the discomfort. And sometimes it's so there, you can just bear it. And sometimes it's kind of like you can put it in the background and it's just kind of a little faint thing in the background, it's there, but it's okay. It's okay in a different way. So I think we go through these different aspects. But I must tell you something. Since uh, I had sciatica, very bad sciatica, many years ago, I have sat on a chair. And when I first sat on a chair, I realized it was so nice, so easy. Uh, It was a discovery. Then I just had pain in my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And then I had to deal much less with pain. I must say that now, generally I deal with much less pain because I sit on the chair. But at the same time, I am not a person who can sit easily for hours. I think we have different temperament. Some people can just sit for hours and they can just do it. And some other cannot really sit for hours like that. I think also different people have different... Bodies, also different sensitivity to discomfort. Also at different time of the day, you might feel it more, sometimes less. So personally, I would say very likely you do the best you can considering the situation. Yes? Um, You mentioned fear. I just wondered if anxiety is the same thing or was it different? Well, I personally I would say anxiety is um, is kind of a fear. I mean, fear is kind of more like the general term, and then you have different type of uh, of, of of experience in term of fear. But I would say anxiety often. The thing with anxiety is that sometimes it's kind of like I would say nearly physiological that some people are more sensitive, their body is more sensitive, which means that they're a little hyper in terms of anxiety. The anxiety baseline is a little higher. And so something that will not do something to me, for example, it makes them ting! It's kind of like they feel it before they think it. Because I think there is different type of anxiety. You have what I would call thinking anxiety, where you frighten yourself. You make a you know, really nasty scenario and then <gasps> you get really kind of... Uh... But then you have what I would call more this physiological sensitive thing where you're kind of very sensitive. And so it's kind of like trying not to amplify that. If already you have a baseline which is a little up with anxiety, I think the meditation can help to bring the baseline maybe a little down and also learn not to amplify. Because the problem with that type of anxiety, the physical one, is that then you think it has a meaning. I am anxious, I must have a good reason to be anxious, and generally you find all kinds of reason to be anxious. It's very easy. And then to learn to be with it, to learn to just let it come through you. It's like a wave, it comes. But if you grasp at it, then you can amplify it. And then it's kind of makes you more and more sensitive, and it kind of becomes a little difficult. But recently, I have had a friend, I've really been amazed, really amazed, because he really had really great anxiety. And then slowly, slowly, he did the meditation, and then it started, I was amazed, he started to do things, uh, things that he was really frightened of, being in crowd, various things like that. And he kind of just used the meditation to, to, be, to be in this situation for 30 minutes at a time. And then he decided to be in a bar for two hours at a time. He said, this is a bit too much. He said, no, 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 I have to do it. He's amazing. And now he does all kinds of things. Like, and he becomes really creative. Although he started with this quite anxious thing. So I think it's something different people have to deal with different things. But I would say, yes, there is a bit of fear, of course, in anxiety. Yes. Does it make any difference? Uh, so, uh, instead of saying, uh, "What is that? Uh, uh, what is it that uh, suffers, or that is uh, uh, sitting, or that thinks?" Use, uh, uh, "Who is suffering? Who is thinking? Who is uh, walking?" Does uh, it the, make any difference? Well, you can try it out. You can try it out, but you see. The, the difference between who is it or who am I, this is another uh, question which is uh, found in other tradition. with the what is this, is that it's very neutral. With who, generally, it's I. And then generally, there is this, it's more personal. When with the what is this, it's more neutral. But it's true that if you say what is it that works, what is it that hears? Then yes, it kind of comes back a little to who hears. So again, I think it's the different association one has. Personally, I know Stephen is keen on a what is it that walks, etc., etc. Personally, I'm more keen on what is this? And just stay there. But that's, you know... One can just try these different things. You see, the words are not very important. If you find all the words... As long as they don't lead to proliferation, you can try different words. Sometimes some people find, you know, like, I don't know, useful. Other people might find what's going on, useful. So I think, again, when I, to find what is it that resonates. What is it I can continue to, to practice with for some time. Okay, so maybe we'll stop here. There is some walking before the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.